Uh, we're going to just be covering um, the healing of the disgraced daughter, the, the, the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years today. That will be our lesson. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for a God who loves us so much that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. Thank you that he is our, our redeemer, that he is our great physician, that he is the physician of our body, mind, soul, and spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful opportunity we have to be your servants down here on planet Earth and to be witnesses for you wherever we go. May we never forget that that is our prime purpose, to glorify you in everything that we do and say and everything that we are. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we study your word to grow more into your likeness, to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And we just thank you now that we have this wonderful opportunity to open up your word, to see what your spirit has to say to us through the words and the works of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would have freedom in our heart, convict us where we need to be convicted, speak to us where we need to be spoken to. And if there is one here who has never asked Jesus Christ to be her Savior and has acknowledged her sin and her need for repentance, I would pray that today would be the day of her salvation. We love you, Jesus, and now we just dedicate this next hour to you. May you be lifted up, for we pray in your name. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue our look at Mark chapter 5, which is what? What is it called? The Bible chapter, the Bible chapter for the incurables. In this one single chapter, and of course, there are parallel passages over in Luke 8 and also Matthew 9 for today's lesson. In this one single chapter, however, of Mark 5, Jesus is very clearly seen as the great physician of the total man because in it he encounters a, a demonically possessed man, which, of course, is what we looked at last week, and he encounters a woman physically disabled and a young girl, 12-year-old girl, whose soul had just departed from her body. These three incurable situations, from man's perspective, symbolize for us the misery and the distress that sin has brought into this world. Has sin brought a lot of distress into this world? More than we could ever imagine. I mean, we just look at our own lives and see how much distress and heartache it's brought. But just think of the whole world, all people in all generations, ever since Adam and Eve, and all the distress and heartache and tears that sin has brought into this world. These three in Mark chapter 5 symbolize the fact that sin touches every single aspect of man. It affects his mind and his spirit, as we learned in the lesson on the Gerasen demoniac who behaved worse than even a wild animal because his spirit was possessed by a legion of unclean spirits. And sin, as we're also going to see in this lesson, affects the body through disease. Whenever we have problems with our physical body, what does it ultimately do to? Sin, because we live in a sin-cursed world. Otherwise, if there hadn't been sin, there'd be no disease. You know, we would live forever. But sin has brought disease into this world. The woman in our story suffered for 12 long years from a humanly incurable disease. As with the demoniac, society could do little more for her than to isolate her. For she was, according, we'll look at this, according to Mosaic law, she was considered unclean, ceremonially unclean. And the final result of all sin is what? Ultimately, it's death. And that is also presented in this chapter because Jesus is taken to the home of Jairus, a leader of the synagogue where they find that his 12-year-old daughter, her soul, had just departed from her body, so she laid there dead. The wages of all sin is death. Society has nothing whatsoever to offer except their, their tears, and in this account, even many of those tears were detached professional tears, as we will discuss. So Satan and sin bring a legion of demons into this world. They bring in disease, depression, discouragement. Did you ever, I was thinking about this, 
You know, if anybody could ever have suffered from depression or discouragement, it would have been Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, everybody except a handful of men rejected him. And they never really did understand him until he returned to them in his glorified person. But his family misunderstood him. His, uh, he, came, he came into the world, and the world knew him not. And he was always, always being persecuted and hated for, without a cause. I just thought about it, you know, that busy day, all that he did. And by the way, did you ever think about the fact that that busy day, which we are now finished with, um, but it began and ended with him healing demoniacs? And in between was nothing but satanic attack. He, it's, the day started out when he healed a demoniac in the, um, was it in the synagogue, I think. And that's when the uh, religious rulers accused him of doing his works in the power of Beelzebub. And then, of course, he, he had to refute that with three irrefutable arguments. And um, then he talked about the unpardonable sin. And then his family came, and they misunderstood him. They thought he was out of his mind. And I can't even remember right now all the things. I know he gave a lot of parables. And then we thought maybe the long day was over, and they went back to the home. And he said, no, let's go out into the boat and cross over to the other side of the Lake of Galilee. They get over there. And what does he do over there? Well, on the way over, there's a satanically induced storm that hits them. He maybe got a couple minutes worth of sleep. They get over to the other side, and what faces them? And two very possessed demoniacs. And uh, I think, though, that that day ended when the, the, the pig herders went off into the city and the country to tell everybody what had happened about the pigs all dying. And, and then, you know, when they returned, they saw the demoniac clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, I think that must have taken a little bit of time. And obviously, the Lord and his men finally had to go to sleep. I think they slept there, maybe on the, on the mountaintop or something with the demoniac. And he had a little bit of time to disciple that demoniac before he then went out into Decapolis and witnessed for the Lord Jesus. But that, was, that had to have been the end of that busy day, because... They came and they immediately asked him to depart from their coasts. And he crosses over. He gets back into Capernaum. And what we're going to find in today's lesson is the minute he lands there, there's this huge crowd waiting for him to throng him. So don't you think, I mean, he couldn't just keep going. There had to have been, I think, a rest. But I just thought it was interesting that the whole day, that whole busy day, was nothing but one satanic attack after another. It began and ended and in between were satanic attacks. So if anybody could ever have been discouraged and depressed, it would have been the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet he never was. After such a horrible day, you know what he does as soon as he lands in Capernaum? He starts thinking about other people. This woman with this issue of blood for 12 years. He stops and takes time with her and, and Jairus who comes to him. He's always thinking of others. Do you know the way out of discouragement and depression? You think about others and try to minister to other people. And pretty soon you just, you know, you die to self. Forget about your own problems and, and focus on others. But the reason Jesus was never depressed or discouraged or distressed or in fear or dread of what the future might bring is because he had no sin. Do you know what brings depression and discouragement and uh, disgrace, defilement, death, all those things? Sin. Remind yourself of that next time you're having a pity party. The reason for it is sin. Jesus never experienced those things because he was sinless. Sin. Sin brings a legion of demons. It brings disease, depression, discouragement, disgrace, dread, um, debt, disruption. Remember how we talk about it? it disrupts the home. It brings discord, defilement, death. All these demons. We could go on and on. It's amazing how many of them do start with D. Society, that's what sin offers, all those things. Society, our fellow man, can only offer isolation, institutions, and internment. Cemeterization, we could call it. Society can only offer disassociation, disengagement, and detachment. 
But fortunately, as we saw last week, there is a third force in the world besides sin in society, and that is a person. It's the Savior. And this, uh, this person, Jesus Christ, um, is the only one that, who can heal the whole man. It is, and and this, uh, the, the force available to the humanly impossible incurables of this world. The only one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that cure is found in his words and in his works and in his person. He alone can bring deliverance to any seemingly impossible situation because he alone has the power and the authority over demons and over disease and even over our worst enemy, which is death. Now, in our lesson last time, oh, let's read the passage. All right, let's do that. That would be a good idea. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And I'll read to verse 34. And again, I'm going to probably stop a few times to tell you what the parallel passages add to this in Matthew and Luke. Starting in Matthew 5, verse 21, it says, And when Jesus was passed over again, I'm sorry, Mark, Mark 5. Mark, 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 I'm sorry. (laughs) And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. So he was still coming out of the sea, the lake, and already the the crowds are there ready to press in upon him. Verse 22, And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. We'll notice in all three of these situations, the demoniac, remember where we found him at the end? At the feet of Jesus. We find Jairus here at the feet of Jesus, and the same thing we're going to see in a minute when we get to the woman with the issue of blood. She winds up at the feet of Jesus. All right, Uh, he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Now, here's where we start the account for our lesson today. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. Now, over in Matthew 9, it says she touched the hem of his garment. The border, it says, I think, in Luke. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue which is really the word dynami, which is the word power, power, not, you know, virtue. We think of virtue as like goodness leaving him, but that isn't the case. It was power, virtue, dynami. And knowing in himself that uh, virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press or in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And it's in Luke, it says, when all denied... And then his disciples and Peter, we find out in the other accounts, was the spokesman, of course. <laughs> and his disciples said unto him, thou seest, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. It tells us in Matthew, when he saw her. And it also tells us in uh, Luke, when the woman saw that she was not hid because he saw her. Kind of reminds me of Peter after he denied the Lord three times and the cock crew, the, all right, cock, cock, no, the crow crude? The cock crude, it says, I think. <laughs> the cock crude. Anyway, he went, ur, 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 for the third time. <laughs> then it says, <laughs> The Lord, I know, I have to keep this tape from my husband. Mm. But when the Lord turned and looked at Peter, 
that look. That's what this reminds me of. He looked around the crowd, who hath touched me? Do you think he didn't know who touched him? And do you think he didn't make eye contact with her? Because it says when she knew that she could not be hid, and it says when he saw her. Anyway, it did remind me of Peter there. Um, Verse 32, he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and what would she do? Fell down before him. It actually says in another account, at his feet, and told him all the truth. And let's see, in one of the other, I think in Matthew, it says, uh, in addition to where it says, he said unto her daughter, he also said, be of good courage. And uh, no, that's not in this account. It's It's over in Matthew. He says, daughter, be of good courage. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Another thing I noticed about this, you know, I was thinking how he, when he crossed the lake and there was that terrible storm and he stood up and it said, peace be still, suddenly there was what? Great calm. When he healed the demoniac, suddenly there was, remember how wild he had been, screaming and shrieking and cutting himself, and then Jesus sends the demons out of him, and what is there? Great calm. And now here with this woman, you know, sudden calm after 12 years of of torture. Not only was she, you know, in distress over her physical problem, but she was isolated from society. We'll talk about that. But then, you know, he comes, Jesus comes along in great calm. And then the next situation with Jairus' daughter, the, the little girl died. And when Jesus and Jairus get to the home, there's all this wailing and carrying on with the professional mourners. And he goes in and raises her from the dead and says, go get her something to eat. What is that? Great calm. It's like in each situation, he says, peace be still. And there's great peace and calm. All right. In our lesson last time on the healing of the demoniac, we learned some important truths regarding pigs. That was our pig lesson. (laughs) First of all, we learned that as far as Satan's realm is concerned, men and pigs are one and the same. They don't care. There's no difference to Satan's realm. You know, they just assume being a a man is a pig or a pig is a man. As a matter of fact, Satan's purpose is to make pigs out of all men. He would like all men to be like the prodigal son and wind up in the pig pen. Secondly, as far as unregenerate society is concerned, pigs are more important than men and than Jesus Christ. So actually, I thought about that, that society is even worse than the demons in that regard. To them, you know, Satan at least put the pigs and man on the same level. But the society, they didn't care one bit about the man being healed, exercised of his demons and in his right mind. They didn't care about him. They didn't care about Jesus Christ. So to them, pigs were more important, right? That was what upset them, was that they lost their, their pig profits, didn't desire to worship Jesus, and they didn't desire for him to heal any other incurables. They didn't want him to stick around so that he could help other people. They were only uh, concerned about their pig profits. Their only desire was to raise their pigs for their own personal pr- prosperity. So that's where society's coming from. But the third truth that we learned from that lesson was that Jesus Christ is the only one who puts the human soul at such a premium, far more valuable than even 2,000 pigs, right? One human soul was more important to him, or two, we could say, because there really were two demoniacs that were healed. Uh, Human soul is far more valuable than pigs. So Jesus Christ is alone the only one who gives value to our lives. He would have sacrificed his own life. I know you've heard this been said many times. He would have sacrificed his own life come down here to earth and died on the old wooden cross, rugged cross, even if you were the only person on earth. If I was the only person, he still would have done that. Satan doesn't care. Society doesn't care. But the Savior cares beyond our limited comprehension. So because he never stays where he's not wanted, Jesus departed the area of the Gerasenes, and he returned to Capernaum. 
as one crowd of people sighed with relief at his departure, another crowd was waiting for his return. A group of people, it says much people, gathered around him as soon as his ship docked. I guess they saw him coming back. They recognized the boat. Like I said, if you, if you stand there and look at the Sea of Galilee, you can see across it. You can see what's going on. I mean, it's not huge so that you can't see what's happening. So they saw him coming, and they were waiting for him. And among that crowd that greeted him as he got out of the boat, there were two people who were particularly interested in seeing him. One was a man, and one was a woman. The man reached Jesus first, Jairus reached him first with his request about his dying daughter, but the woman was healed first. The man was an elder or a ruler, an official of the synagogue. He was an important person. He was a ruler of that synagogue that the Roman centurion had helped to finance or had financed. Remember the Roman centurion with great faith? He and Jairus knew each other. He was a prominent man in Capernaum. The woman, on the other hand, was very insignificant and isolated. People in the synagogue didn't even know her because she wasn't allowed because of her condition. She was not even allowed in the synagogue because she would defile it. And we'll talk about that. The man is is named for us. Actually, the pronunciation should be J-Iris. J-Iris. But that's harder to say. I'm going to say Jairus. Uh, But we're given his name. Are we given the woman's name? No. She remains anonymous. We'll find out what her name is, I guess, when we get to heaven. Jairus was wealthy. Obviously, a man of his position would be wealthy, but the woman was bankrupt. What did she spend all her money on? Doctors, physicians trying to find a cure. And so she was bankrupt. The man sought Jesus because he was about to lose a daughter who had brought him 12 years of joy. The woman sought Jesus because she needed to lose a disablement, a disease that had caused her, brought her 12 years of sorrow. But although they were vastly different, these two, this man and this woman, they were vastly different from man's perspective, both Jairus and this poor, bleeding woman found the answer to their supposedly incurable situations at the very same place. And where was that? At the feet of Jesus Christ. While Jesus was among the multitude, a ruler of the synagogue approached him, this Jairus, and uh, fell before him, and he besought him to come and heal his dying daughter. He said, you know, she's at the, the very point of death. Don't you imagine as he was watching Jesus cross over the lake, you know, he was standing there on the shore you know, must have been saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. You know, my daughter's dying. Please hurry up. The man had to have been feeling that way. Don't you know? And do you think Jesus knew that this daughter was dying even before he crossed over the lake to go over to the demoniac? Of course he knew. Just like when he knew Lazarus and he, you know, that Martha and Mary thought he was too late getting there, but all on his time schedule. He's never in a hurry because he's always on time. Even if we think he's late, he's always on time. Actually, the miracle of the healing of this diseased woman, this woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, is a parenthetical miracle. Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter when this woman's faith reached out and touched him. So it's really a parenthesis. But if we think about it, all of our Lord's miracles are parenthetical. All of his mighty works that he performed while he was here on earth were performed as he was en route to his one major miracle, which was his death on the cross and his resurrection, you know, three days later. So everything in between was just like this woman's healing. It was all parenthetical. As he made his way through this world, to make it possible for each and every one of us to be raised from the dead, just like Jairus' daughter. He was always, always stopping along the way to meet the needs and to meet the hurts of individual people. And I thought about that. He was never upset when he was interrupted. 
Do you get upset sometimes when you're interrupted from what you're doing? The phone rings and, oh, now I've got to spend half an hour talking to this person or whatever. Or like this woman this morning, all of a sudden there, I was thinking, I'm going to be late to get to Bible study and go over my, I didn't get time to go over my lesson like I usually do in here. But, and I thought about Jesus. He was never, ever upset when somebody interrupted him. And he would give them his full attention, just like he did with this woman. He gave her his full attention. Isn't that an example for us to remember? and for us to follow. He was always stopping along the way to meet the needs and the hurts of other people. We find he's no different in the two accounts before us today. As he proceeded on his way toward Jairus's house, two significant things happened. Jairus, who was obviously, as a very concerned father, very, um, very much in a hurry to get Jesus to his home before it was too late, before his daughter slipped away, he had his he had his faith severely tested. And we'll talk about this next week. How would you feel if you were in his shoes and you're on, you know, you finally Jesus gets to the shore and you've got him going to your home, your daughter's dying, and all of a sudden he stops to deal with some insignificant woman. His test, his faith was really tested by a delay. So that's the first significant thing that happened. And the second thing was that an incurable woman was healed and saved spiritually by a mere touch of faith. Because her miracle occurred first, that is the reason. Even though Jairus is mentioned first in this account, she is healed first. So we're going to leave Jairus for next week. We're going to leave him for now. And we're going to discuss the anonymous woman and her situation. And as we consider this event, we're going to do what we did last week as we looked at the um, Gadarene demoniac. We're going to look at what sin had done to her life. We're going to see what society was able to do for her. And thirdly, then we're going to see what the Savior was able to do for her. This woman, whose identity we're not given, suffered from a hemorrhage that was perhaps the result of a tumor or some other disease of the uterus. Actually, today, I think it is called von Willebrand's disease, where she continued to, to bleed for 12 years. Now, this wouldn't be profuse bleeding, or obviously she would die, but she was constantly, you know, bleeding, having spotting or whatever you would call it. It would be like having your menstrual period for 12 years. Pretty bad. Yeah, just go ahead and shoot me. But the Bible, I mean, the Bible is an amazing book. It doesn't, doesn't skip talking about anything. All right, anyway, for 12 long years, she continually bled. And remember, in those days, they didn't have light days. <laughs> and the, the convenient things we have, it would just be awful, awful. She must have, and also think about, you know, she just must have been zapped, drained, of all of her strength and her energy and just left very weak. Mark tells us that she sought the help of many physicians. I'm sure she went to every physician, every doctor for miles around and had spent all of her money looking for a cure. Do any of you ever feel like that? Yes. That's easy to have happen. But it says her condition only grew worse. She didn't get better, she got worse. In addition to her physical suffering, which you know we talked about for a minute, would have been bad enough, as we as women would know, um, she had the heavy, and I think this is even the worst part of it, she had the heavier burden of social and psychological emotional suffering, which this disease brought her. According to the law, now this is where you have to read it on your own, in Leviticus 15, 19 to 27, he was considered unclean, ceremonially unclean. Only after seven days, after seven days of no bleeding, could such a woman be considered clean again. But she'd been bleeding for 12 long years. She had no break where she could cleanse herself for a week and then be clean again. So she had been unclean for 12 years. This meant that she was excluded entirely from the synagogue. Because she, she couldn't go into the synagogue because, according to Leviticus 15, she would contaminate everything she sat on. And anyone who, uh, everyone who touched her, 
If a person touched her, that person was unclean for the rest of that day, had to cleanse himself or herself, and was considered unclean until the night. If anyone slept with her, like her husband, he was considered unclean for the next seven days. And also, the Jews considered a situation like hers, if she was married, they gave the man permission to divorce her. That was, they said, grounds for divorce. It also meant that she would be unable to conceive a child during those 12 years. Twice, if you look at verse 29 and again at verse 34, her disease is referred to as a plague, which literally in the Greek, this is interesting, carries the meaning of a whip. The disease was like a whip. It was continuously beating the strength out of her. It sapped her life's blood from her. She was whipped physically. She was whipped emotionally. She was whipped religiously. She couldn't participate in her religion. She was whipped socially. She couldn't get near to somebody without making them unclean, almost like a leper. And all of this is what a picture of what sin does to life, a life. Sin is a plague. It is like a whip that saps us of our energy, of our life's blood. Sin is a disease which no human physician can cure, right? Can any physician give you a cure for sin? I'll never forget when Shirley Cottrell first came to this Bible study, and she had been to see a local physician and told him, her situation, which was, I think, basically hormonal. (laughs) And instead of writing her a prescription, he got the little prescription pad out. This was Dr. Larry Butler. And he wrote down the name and time for our ladies' Bible study. And she came, and it changed her life, didn't Leslie? Hmm? And she brought Leslie, Garrett. And Leslie has brought her daughter, and her daughter has brought their sons. You see But no human physician can can give us a cure for sin. But one who is a Christian can tell us where to find that cure in Jesus Christ and in his word. Sin takes away life. It never, ever gives life. Sin drains us of its joy. It never brings joy. Like this woman this morning, there was no joy in that lady's face, none whatsoever. Sin causes us to be separated from true worship. To a holy God, it never brings us closer to God. Have you noticed any people that are involved in some kind of sin? Do they love coming to church and love coming to Bible study? No. What do you see? You see them disappear. You see them drop away. Sin doesn't bring us closer to God at all. Sin removes us from our beloved bridegroom. It never brings us closer to him. And sin causes us to be unfruitful. It causes us to be unproductive, just like this woman couldn't bear fruit. She couldn't have a child because of this problem. So this woman was shunned from society and even from her own family. And if she was married, you know, from her own husband and from participation in her religion. Just as society had disassociated itself from the incurable demoniac, so society had disengaged itself from this incurable woman. No human physician, although she had been to many, had been able to cure her. In fact, it says her condition grew worse and her money drained away. Now, this is interesting. The Jewish Talmud lists some very strange remedies for a woman who had a disease such as this. And most of these, of course, as you hear me, well, all of them actually, are nothing but superstitions. You've heard old wives' tales about, like, you know, if you want to get pregnant, you do this and you do that, et cetera, et cetera. Well, these these are some of the craziest things I have ever heard. They said if, if for a woman to have, who has an issue of blood, if she wants to be cured, she needs to carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and in a cotton bag during the winter. Or, and I love this one, or she is to carry a barley corn kernel that is, was found in the dung of a white donkey. <laughs> yeah, they're on every corner. <laughs> Can you imagine looking for it? <laughs> that alone would make you sick. <laughs> I think I'd rather have the bleeding. Ugh. 
All right, now here's some more. Oh, here's some more that I found in this book. Marvin Vincent, and you know, you've heard of Vincent's Greek word studies. Uh, maybe you haven't, but it's famous. In his Greek word studies, uh, tells us that the prescription found in the Talmud for the medical treatment of her disease would cause her much suffering just in itself. He quotes the prescription. Here's the prescription that's in the Jewish Talmud for an issue of blood like this. Take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of Azuzi, <laughs> whatever that is, of alum, the same, of crocus, the same. Let them be bruised together or, you know, mashed up and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit her, take of Persian onions three pints, <laughs> boil them in wine, and give her to drink, and say, arise from thy flux, which means your heavy flow of blood. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet. Put her in the intersection. <laughs> That'll cure <laughs> I usually don't get silly until night. <laughs> All right. <laughs> set her in a place where two ways meet. And let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand. I can see her standing near a tramway intersection. <laughs> a cup of wine in her right hand. And let, some, and let someone come up behind her and frighten her. I was in a semi-truck. Man. <laughs> <laughs> and if that doesn't work I'm not kidding this is in the Talmud if that, if that do no good take a handful of cumin a handful of crocus and a handful of fenugreek whatever that is and let these be boiled in wine and give them her to drink and say arise from thy flux then Vincent goes on and says, if these prescriptions did not work, the Talmud had more. And he quotes one of them as follows. Let them dig seven ditches in which let them burn some cuttings of vines, not yet four years old. Let her take in her hand a cup of wine. They always have to have the wine. <laughs> and, and I know that, I know that makes it so, I know exactly. That's why I'm reading this to you. Let her take, all right, they dig seven ditches, and then they give her a cup of wine, and let them lead her away from this ditch and make her sit down over that ditch. And then, you know, when that ditch, if that ditch doesn't work, move her and put her over another ditch. And say to her after each removal, arise from thy flux. And like Terry said, no wonder the woman suffered and grew worse. You know, the, the concoctions that she was told to drink <laughs> which is, probably gave her stomach problems in addition to her, to her issue of blood. And that's why the scripture says, you know, she only grew worse. Poor woman. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> and this is how mankind is. I mean, man will go everywhere searching for a cure, <laughs> you know, for his incurable condition. In, in his attempt to solve his heart problem, instead of going to the great physician, where will he go? He'll go, for example, to Dr. Pleasure, and uh, he'll have a cup of wine in this hand and a cigarette in this hand or whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, and Dr. F Dr. Um, Pleasure will give him all kinds of sweet-tasting medicines that will only last for a little while, but ultimately will make him much worse because the sugar coating merely disguises the hidden poison. Sometimes man will go, go to Dr. Education or Dr. Intelligent, who, intelligence who gives him medicines that will puff up his head, but they don't cure the deep longing of his heart. Uh, some will go, like in this situation, to Dr. Superstition. These were really just all superstitious foolishness. Some will go to men like Dr. Religion, who will give them a little dose of ceremony and a little dose of ritual, which you know they're to take at least once a week, preferably on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Take a little dose. But Dr. Religion has never yet been able to satisfy the void within the human art. There's only one true doctor, 
and no amount of money can buy what he has to offer, right? Because what he has to offer is totally, it's totally free. It's just there for the taking. Well, when the woman had come to the point where she realized that no mere man or man-made system or science, superstition or technology or education or anything else would help her, she was at the point where Jesus could. It is when man realizes his need of the Savior that he becomes a prime candidate for the miracle of salvation and deliverance from all the plagues of sin. Mark 5.27 tells us that when the woman had heard of Jesus, now this tells us the importance of witnesses. People were spreading the word. I don't know where she lived. Maybe she lived in a nearby town. Maybe she didn't live in Capernaum. But she heard by word of mouth, she heard of Jesus. She'd heard the testimonies of other people who had been healed by him, perhaps. And she gained enough trust and faith in him through the words of others to seek him herself. Maybe she'd heard about the the centurion's servant who had been healed at a distance. So she began to think within herself, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. You know, that's faith. She, she believed he really could cure her, even like the man at a dis- the servant at a distance. If she just touched his clothes, not him, but his clothes, she could be healed. You know, she could have used many excuses to stay at home that day. She could have given up in despair and said, well, nothing ever worked before. Why should this? She could have scoffed at the reports that she'd heard about him or said, you know, well, Jesus might work for some, but I'm just too far gone. My case is incurable. I'm in an impossible situation. I'm so sick and tired of going to doctors. Forget it. And she, could not, she might not have uh, believed the reports that were given to her. She could have felt she was just too insignificant for such a one as Jesus to bother with. You know, who am I? I'm a nobody. I can't even go into the synagogue. Why is this important teacher, this miracle healer, why would he pay attention to me? She could have used the excuse that she would contaminate others if she got into the crowd to reach him and you know everybody this crowd was really pressing in and they were all you know like a crowd like a mob you know people bumped her and everybody who bumped her was immediately unclean so she could have said well i'm just going to contaminate other people she could have thought to herself that he would become angry with her when she touched and therefore defiled him she could have said to herself that it was not right to only come to him as a last resort She could have also seen the worry and desperation in Jairus. I mean, this probably would have kept me away. You know, he he reached him first. He reached the Lord first, and he really had a desperate situation. His little daughter was dying. So she could have self, well, you know, said to herself, well, I'm not going to interrupt. You know, this is, she might have been intimidated by the, the prominence of the ruler of the synagogue and said, well, he certainly has priority over me. So, you know, she could have just said, forget it and gone back to her house um, because his need was more important than hers. In other words, this woman, like so many people, like this woman I talked to this morning who said, well, not today, let me think about it. And I said, you know, you're not guaranteed even tomorrow. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. But this woman, just like so many in the world, she could have come up with any one of a number of reasons to not go to Jesus for deliverance. But she didn't, did she? She didn't. She had enough faith to allow nothing to stand in her way. She was going to press through that crowd and get to him at all costs. She wouldn't stop him. Here was her plan. She wouldn't stop him as he's on his way to Jairus' house because she knew She could empathize. She knew that Jairus was in a hurry. As a matter of fact, her plan was that she wasn't even going to talk to Jesus. She was too insignificant for him to bother with. She would just reach up and touch the hem of his garment, and that that touch alone, she had decided, would be enough to cure her. And that's exactly what she did. She didn't touch him on the hand because that would have been too intimate. And the skin contact would have defiled him, or she would have thought it would have defiled him. Would it have defiled him? No. She didn't touch him on the head either, because that would have been too irreverent, and she would also have thought that she would defile him. But she softly, secretly touched his clothing. Perhaps she thought that simple touch would not defile him, because it wasn't him, it was just his clothing. 
And that way, he wouldn't feel anything, and she could go away totally unnoticed and not even bother him or stop him from his journey to Jairus' home. So she put fingers to her faith, and she touched the hem of his garment. Now, what that actually was was not the, not the hem you know, down at the bottom of his robe. She could not have done that in the crowd. There was no way she could get down in a crowd like that to touch the bottom of his garment. What it was was a shawl that they, the rabbis wore, and um, the back of it folded over kind of like this, and it had tassels hanging from it. And those tassels are called uh, zit-zit. <laughs> zit-zit. <laughs> and what she did is she reached out and she touched one of those four zit-zits. <laughs> Come to Bible study and learn all kinds of interesting things. <laughs> but that's, that's actually what she touched. She put fingers to her faith. And it tells us immediately Jesus felt dynami. He felt power go out from him. You see, there was a great collision, and both sides felt the impact. He felt the impact, and she also immediately felt the impact. She felt instantly her healing. She felt her her blood dry up within her. I don't know how she felt that, but she did. She knew she was immediately healed of a 12-year-long plague, you know, being whipped over and over again. And Jesus immediately felt that power flow out of him. The flow of her plague collided with the flow of his power. And whenever sin collides with the Savior, who comes out the victor? The Savior, always, every single time. He was not defiled. The woman was purified. Just like when the lepers would touch him. He wasn't defiled. The lepers were healed. Jesus freely gave this woman what she had used all her money trying to pay to get. Then the woman, after that wonderful healing, tried to slip away unnoticed. And she must have been shocked when suddenly she heard Jesus say, Who touched my clothes? Being omniscient, you know, all-knowing, he at once knew the difference between the crowds pressing upon him. You think people in the crowd were bumping into him and touching him? Of course they were. That's what we're going to see in a minute the disciples talk about. But he knew the difference between the crowds pressing upon him and this one small touch of faith on the zit-zit of his shawl there. He knew someone with real faith had reached out to him. You see, he knows the difference between those who throng to their churches on Sunday morning in mere uh, ritualistic habit and those who have genuinely reached out in faith and touched him. Now, the disciples with, with Peter as their spokesman thought he was being kind of ridiculous here. There were many people pressing upon him, pushing and thronging about him. Many of them had probably bumped up against him. So how could they possibly sing, single out any one person from such a crowd? Well, let me read you something about that. With a great multitude of people thronging about Christ, Peter and the others could not understand why Christ would ask the question. Couldn't he see that many people were pushing up against him? They thought it was a dumb question. Just like, you know, they thought it was dumb of him to purposely agitate the religious rulers. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? And instead of getting them on their, his side, why would he grow, go across the Sea of Galilee after such a busy day instead of just having a peaceful night of rest at home? Why would he fall asleep in the boat? And leave them to perish. Why go all the way to deal with a demoniac and lose 2,000 pigs and get the whole population of the Gadarenes upset so that they had to leave? You know, that was a waste of time. That wasn't, that was dumb to do. And why now stop about this issue with this whoever touched you? Big deal. You know, Jairus is important. He's a ruler of the synagogue, he could have influence, Lord. So this, to them, was a dumb question. But Christ, unlike we humans, does not ask dumb questions or do dumb things. 
Just because man does not discern a wise purpose in divine action does not mean there is no purpose in the action or that it was a dumb action. We are all guilty of questioning God's actions at times, aren't we? But be assured that God has very good reasons for his actions, and it is not necessary for us to know those reasons in order to, for them to exist and to be excellent. To question God is to insult him and make it appear that you know more than he does. And that's exactly what the disciples did here. Um, Peter and the others who were protesting the question were totally ignorant of what had taken place in the woman's life who had touched Jesus by faith. Many people are like that. They are ignorant of matters relating to God. Christ can be working in hearts, but they are not spiritual enough to discern it. God can be working in events of the day, but they never see God's hand in anything. They cannot discern between a touch of faith and a touch of flesh. Many were touching Christ in the flesh as the crowds pushed up against him and jostled him along the way. But only one person had touched Christ in faith. Spiritually, it's the same. Many touch, but do not touch. Many hear, but do not really hear. Many see, but do not really see. They read the scripture, but they don't get anything from reading because faith is absent. So, really, they were insulting the Lord, the disciples, when they, you know, they said, well, Lord, you know, there's many people here. What do you mean, who touched me? But Jesus knew there had been a special touch, a touch of real faith, and the woman herself knew that she was the one Jesus wanted. It says in Luke 8:45, when all denied, the whole crowd denied, and she didn't speak up either, so she's included in that. You know, when he said, who touched me? Nobody spoke up, including her. And that's when Luke tells us that he saw her. And we've already talked about the look that must have transpired between the woman and the Lord. It says, when the woman saw that she was not hid, that is when she did what? She came forward, fell at his feet, and revealed herself and... In front of everybody, it says that she told him all the truth. Now that, for her problem, would be an embarrassing situation. But she did it. She told in front of everybody all the truth. How she had been sick and how she had just felt that she had been healed. Now, did Jesus ask who touched him because he didn't know who it had been? Of course not. He knew all about her, but he wanted to give her an opportunity for a public witness as to what had happened to her. And this is for four basic reasons. First of all, it was not to embarrass her. Jesus doesn't want any of us to confess him publicly so that we'll be embarrassed. That's not what it's all about. He wanted her to have the wonderful opportunity to confess her faith in him so as to glorify God the Father. It says in Psalm 50:15, I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. That's why he doesn't take us home to be with him as soon as we're saved. We're here to glorify God. That is our purpose in our life. Once we're saved is to glorify the Father, which we do when we honor his Son. If she had been allowed to just sneak away quietly, as many Christians want to do after they've been saved she would have never received the privilege of honoring God with her public confession. She would have missed her opportunity to to meet Jesus so personally and intimately that he actually even called her daughter. She would have missed his words of assurance when he said, Thy faith hath made thee whole, which is another word for saved. And he said, Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. I personally believe that a majority of people who suffer from um, lack of assurance about their salvation, number one, a lot of them probably really aren't saved, but another reason many people have a a problem with their um, assurance is because they have never publicly confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. He says in his word, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the what? Mouth, confession, is made unto salvation. He also says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. And he says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also, will the Son of Man be ashamed 
Jesus, you see, was giving this woman a golden opportunity to confess him publicly and assure herself that one day he would publicly confess her to his father in heaven. Secondly, this, this opportunity given to her to come forward and make everything public was, uh, was to give her a victory over two things, her fear of Christ and her fear of the crowd. First of all, she feared Christ. It says she was trembling. It said, whatever, fearful and trembling or something like that. She was afraid when he said, who touched my clothes? She was afraid of retribution. She was afraid that Jesus was maybe going to judge her for what she had just done. Maybe he would even take back the healing. You know, that's what, that was what was on her mind. She was, she was sneaking away, um, hoping to get, a, to get away. But when he called out, she was afraid that he was going to bring judgment on her. But Jesus doesn't bring judgment on those who have trusted him in faith, does he? He only wants to increase their blessing. That's what this was all about. He wanted to increase her blessing. Then secondly, it, this helped her overcome her fear of Christ, but it also helped her fear overcome her fear of the crowd. There would have been great fear for her to do this publicly among that huge crowd. The woman had you know, some modesty about her situation. And she didn't, you know, he didn't really want her to be embarrassed about it. But in spite of this situation, she needed to let other people know what had happened to her. Otherwise, nobody would have known about the miracle, would they? It wouldn't even be recorded in the word for us. The disciples wouldn't have known about it. Nobody would have known. She would have been the only one to have known about it. So in spite of her fear, she still came and she owned up. Maybe her disease was a result of sin. Maybe she confessed. It says he, she said all the truth. Maybe she confessed some sin in her life. And uh, she owned up to her actions before Christ. You know, we all have, and I'm thinking of sharing day coming up. We all have trouble confessing to others our relationship to Christ and what he has done for us. We fear the crowd. Don't we? So many of us have a fear of doing that. That's why we say, well, you can write it down and everything. But this, this woman's situation really spoke to me about that and how we really need to encourage you to do it yourself. We fear the crowd, but a trembling confession is still better than no confession. And when you stand up to share what Christ has done for you and you're fearful, think about what are you really fearful about? Is anybody in here going to eat you up? Is anybody going to laugh at you if you're talking about what the Lord has done for you or what the word of God has meant to you? What are you really fearful of when it really comes down to it? We're, we're fearful really because of self. You know, we don't want people to think little of us or to think, you know, we're making an idiot of ourselves. I've gotten used to that. I make an idiot of myself every week, but remember that. A trembling confession is better than no confession at all. So I encourage you to read your own statement or just say it yourself. All right? I know I'm out of time. Her confession also served as an encouragement and a testimony to others, especially who needed this at this time. Jairus, he needed to hear this. And it was also a rebuke. It was a rebuke to the disciples. Jesus did know exactly what he was talking about. He didn't ask a dumb question. They don't learn it yet because they keep, they keep wondering about him all the way along. But it was a rebuke to the disciples. It was also a rebuke to the multitude. There were many who were a part of that crowd, but they never received any blessings from Jesus. There are many in our crowds of, in our Christian churches today who never receive the true saving power of Jesus. It's one thing to press him, as the crowd was doing, but it's another thing altogether different to touch him by faith. You know, many people come to church and press, press in on Christ for the wrong reasons. For entertainment, they come for social reasons, they come to appease their consciences and say, well, I've done my religious thing for the week. They come for social contact or whatever. Many, many reasons. But there was only one in that crowd that day who got a blessing because she reached out in faith. And the reward of her public confession was to hear his beautiful and intimate words. You know, this is the only time 
that Jesus called anyone daughter. It's amazing. I mean, he said, ye are my mother and my brethren, you know, etc. But he never called anyone his daughter except this one woman. And I think that would be a really special privilege right there. All right, I know I have kept you over time, but uh, he said her faith had made her whole seven times in the three Gospels. You will find that word whole, and it's the same word that is used elsewhere for saved. She was not only healed physically by the great physician, but she was also healed spiritually. All right, let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you again for the patience of your people. Bless each woman here. Keep her from the evil one. Lord, bring us all back safely next week. And and thank you, Lord, for... um, for sending Jesus Christ, the great physician, to be the, the healer, the redeemer of not only our, um, our bodies, which one day will be resurrected, but also of our eternal souls. Thank you. We cannot praise you and thank you enough for the truth of Jesus Christ and the power of his person. Thank you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.